Let's pray as we continue in our worship. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that as we gather around our homes for online worship as your people, as your church, we thank you that these songs remind us of your beauty, remind us of your worth, remind us of our call to live all of our days for you. It reminds us that even after we turn off our computers or phones or tablets or TVs, that you will continue to be worthy of our worship. Thank you for these songs that remind us that even when we're not singing, as we're hearing and as we're engaging with one another, as we listen to your word, that all of this is our act of worship to you. To declare the worth of God is what it means to worship you. And to do that with all of our hearts is our calling in light of the God who has rescued us out of the dominion of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. We pray that you would help us to continue to uh, surrender to you our hearts as we continue in this service. We pray that as we do, you would remind us of how the resurrection has changed everything, how Easter has changed everything about our lives. We pray that you would help us to see that if this really is true, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then nothing about our lives is the same. Remind us that there is a message that's been given to us, not just some good news, but the good news, the greatest news that we could ever hear as people, the greatest news that our neighbors could ever know. We pray that you would help us to live that out. Show us uh, what it means. Teach us what it means as we live uh, each day as a church and as individuals, glorifying you by equipping Christ-centered leaders to transform the world. We remember today, uh, as we do each week and as we do throughout the weeks, our workers and our friends who are serving you faithfully, as we remember the places in which they serve, we remember their names and their faces and their families, as we pray for missionaries scattered throughout Asia, throughout closed nations, throughout Uh, different places where your gospel is going forth. We lift up those serving in different college campuses. We lift up those who are mobilizing workers to go into the mission field. We pray for our friends who are in uh, hard places, places that have become even harder because of the coronavirus pandemic that is affecting populations throughout the world. As we think about our friends, we lift up uh, those who are serving you uh, here and abroad those who have been displaced as well as those who remain with the people to whom you've called them to be. We lift up those serving you in Spain and in Cameroon, Africa. We lift up those who are serving you in Taiwan and serving in Turkey and in in Jordan. We lift up those serving in different places in Japan and serving amongst uh, the people of China in different capacities, in different uh, provinces and different villages. We pray for our friends who are serving in places like Thailand and places like Myanmar. Pray for those serving in in, in Kyrgyzstan and in Vietnam. And we pray for uh, our friends ministering faithfully the gospel and holding out the word of hope, shining like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. We pray for our workers in Ecuador and Nicaragua and other places around the world that you would burden our hearts. And as we think about how much our lives have been affected because of this COVID-19 situation, remind us of how much their lives and their ministries and all that they've left behind have been impacted as well. May we, uh, who are able, increase our ability and our willingness and uh, our actual giving financially, in our prayers, in our communication with them. And and Lord, as we hear continually the words that you have spoken into our lives uh, through your disciples and the word of God spoken to us, remind us how important it was 2,000 years ago and remind us how timely.
timelessly powerful your word is to us today. Would you speak in a way that uh, you alone can? Pray that you would give us then ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. Be with me, please, I ask. My gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name. Would you meet with us here and may this be our best worship that we offer to you and may we be changed through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, good morning. It's always wonderful to see you today. Uh, thank you for being the church online and for bringing uh, your heart and your allegiance and devotion to the Lord. Um, just to kind of get a feel of who's here and to have us engage and, and, and greeting one another, um, I've been thinking about this a little bit uh, throughout the week. Can you just, um, for a minute or so, can you type in your chat box down there on Facebook or YouTube or whichever, whichever platform you're using? Um, has there been a game or a puzzle, maybe it's a video game, maybe it's a board game, something that has been uh, helpful to you as you pass the time with your loved ones, your roommates, your family, your friends, uh, anything that you've gotten into for the first time or you've reintroduced yourself to uh, during this time? Let's spend uh, about uh, a minute or so. Uh, just sharing some answers, maybe helping us to know uh, what you've been doing and how we might be able to engage in some of those activities as well. So let's take 60 seconds to do that. One of the things that's been on my mind these days, uh, this past week, is the old children's game hide-and-seek. When's the last time you played hide-and-seek? Um, I used to play when I was a kid. I stopped, obviously, I stopped playing for a long time. Uh, I played again when I went to college. We would sometimes late at night run around the psychology building and play hide-and-seek at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. Of course, it was after we had finished studying, um, and we would play, and we would hide, and we would engage, and it would be a lot of fun. And then, I, again, I stopped playing for a long time until we started having children. Now our uh, kids are a little bit older, so we don't play hide-and-seek that much anymore. In fact, the big kids don't like to play. Uh, the little one still likes to play every now and then. But um, sometimes the way that we'd play and, and when especially Elise was much younger, she was the little one and her feet were small and her legs were small and so uh, her perspective was small. She couldn't see and so what she thought would be a great hiding place ended up not being very great because uh, bigger people can see a, a much broader uh, perspective and so she would always get crushed when she would play. But uh, we play hide and seek and this is what you do. You count to 20 or whatever the given number is and then here's the catchphrase, ready or not, here I come. A lot of times when Elise was younger and she wanted me to be clear to you that this doesn't happen now that she's older, but when she was younger, uh, she would still be trying to find a hiding place. So we'd say, ready or not, here we come, here I come. And she would say, no, 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 I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And so her sympathetic family members would say, okay, Elise, we're going to count to 50. Again, not now, but when she was younger. Okay, we're going to count to 50. But uh, there was one person in our family who would not budge on the rules being the rules. And they said, no. 
no, it doesn't matter. That's why we say, ready or not, here we come. And they would go and they would say, I found you. You're not even hiding yet. You're it now. And that's the way it would go. And, and younger Elise would get upset about that. But everything about the game hide and seek is predicated upon this one simple phrase, ready or not, here I come. As we continue in this series on how Easter changes our lives, like how does like the reality of Easter really change the way that we live life here on earth? Does it make a difference outside of one week on earth and then the only time we think about it is when we get to heaven. How does it make a difference on earth? As we ask that question, you might be thinking, how long is this series going to go? I mean, we ran out of pages in the Gospel of John. We're all done, aren't we? Well, two other Gospel writers, and the Gospels are the biographies of Jesus, written by people who are eyewitnesses, uh, Matthew and Luke, talk about and fill in the rest of the details about the true story of Jesus after the events of John's Gospel. And so what we're going to do uh, for the next uh, few weeks is we're going to look at what Matthew and Luke say about the last maybe two or three weeks of Jesus' life. They don't give a, a, a concrete timeline, so we're not altogether sure if it's two weeks or three weeks or one week, but, uh, but whatever it was, we're going to look into that time period in Jesus' life after the things that we've already seen. And what we're going to do is we're going to see today that Jesus is about to play hide and seek at a macro level, at a cosmic level, but he's not playing a game. He's not going to hide in some corner of the earth. He's ascending into heaven where he will be hidden in our hearts. The disciples will look, but they will not be able to find him, at least not on this earth. And so the question that comes uh, to the forefront of the people's minds then is, when Jesus leaves, what's going to happen to the movement that he began? The thing that he called people to leave everything behind and walk with him for three years, he's dying, he's leaving now. What's going to happen to that movement? And what we're going to see over the next three weeks is the final speech recorded in the Gospels, recorded by Matthew, is a speech called the Great Commission, and there he lays out the succession plan. He's going to talk about who his successors are going to be. He's going to talk about what the plan is and how these people are to carry this out. As we look into that over the next three weeks, what I want to do today is start by looking at the people to whom Jesus would entrust the mission that he began. Like, who are those people? Not only then, but more importantly, who are those people now? And what does that great commission have to do with us uh, 2,000 years after it was spoken. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read the last several verses of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, we're going to read verses 16 through 20. Uh, what's known as Jesus' Great Commission, his final recorded words in the gospels uh, to anybody in this context. He's speaking to his disciples. So if you look at Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 through 20, this is God's word. It says, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's word. Uh, Somebody once said that these are probably the 58 most important words ever spoken into existence. I'm not sure if it's even 58. I'm not sure who said that, but uh, someone has said that. I saw that on an email somewhat recently. Uh, But these words are absolutely life-changing. How does Easter change our lives? Well, uh, because Jesus rose again and has authority, he's giving a commission to all those who would follow after him to those who would bear the name of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, here's one way that my being alive changes everything. Here, you have something to live for, a purpose that's bigger than your own life. In fact, this purpose to live is as big as the world. In fact, it's bigger than all of earth. It touches both heaven and earth. And as we begin to unpack that in the coming days, the first thing that I want to look at is to whom was this commission given? Who were these people? And how does that impact the way that we ought to live today? Well, there's uh, three thoughts that I want to bring out from this passage about the who of the Great Commission. Here's the first thing. Who does God use in order to not only cause the movement of Jesus to survive, but to take over the known world? Here's who God uses. First thing, God wants to use you even though you don't feel ready. God wants to use you even though you don't feel ready. Jesus saying, ready or not, here you go. Who would the movement come down to? This is what it says in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. See, 11 disciples, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. So here's, here's what's going on. Jesus had handpicked, about three and a half years before this, he had handpicked these 12 people. Knowing their background, knowing their pedigree, knowing what they were doing, he called them and chose them to live with him in order that they might be his retirement plan, his succession plan for when he leaves the earth. He chooses these people and he lives with them. He teaches them. They're privy to everything that Jesus is, says, does, thinks, breathes. All of that has been given to them. And Jesus is saying, you're going to be the people to take on the mission. So it only makes sense. I mean, this is succession 101 when it comes to any company, it comes to a nonprofit profit, uh, who you train and who you work with for that period of time, you invest everything into them, and then it's their time when you leave. It's pretty simple. But when you look at and, and you get into a little bit of the detail, you realize that these people aren't quite the ready-made successors that we might think, right? Jesus has chosen them for the task, but when you read through the biography of Jesus and you read through the Gospels, this, these people are more, more like the little rascals maybe than they are uh, the X-Men, the Avengers, right? Ready to conquer the world. They're not like that. The picture that we get is, is, is a group of people who are just kind of bumbling around, stumbling around, don't really know what they're doing, asking questions, not having faith, not trusting, having forgotten what they'd seen. Like these are the kind of guys who on the way they're arguing about who's the greatest amongst them. Like who does that kind of stuff? Well, these guys do that kind of stuff. The kind of people when Jesus has just shown them all of these miracles, there's 5,000 people that need to be fed. And Jesus is like, guys, where where, where are we going to feed them? How are we going to feed them? And the dude who speaks up says, you know what? Um, There's no restaurant open right now. It's like in the time of coronavirus, nowhere to go. There's nowhere to, and plus we, you know how much money we need? We don't have the kind of money 
These were the kinds of people that Jesus was entrusting the keys to the kingdom with. They're the kind of people who, uh, when they should be praying, are sleeping. They're the kind of people who chop off people's ears. They're the kind of people who the one thing they ought to be doing right is fishing. We saw a couple weeks ago they couldn't even do that right. And these are the people. But why would Jesus entrust the kingdom and the mission of God to them? Well, because we've been seeing the resurrection changes everything, right? Once they see Jesus, they're ready to go, right? Well, Here's what we see in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Now this word worship, there's several different words for worship in the Greek. This word means they fell prostrate before him. Like everything about their lives. They bowed down. They're all in. They're like Jesus. We And they worship him with all that they have. It's easy to overlook this, but the next thing it says is, but some doubted. Like, what the heck, disciples? Are you kidding me? Like, we dealt with doubt before with Thomas, and you're doubting again? This is, and, and Matthew, what in the world is wrong with you? Like, Matthew was one of these people. Why did he include this? Matthew, you're on the side of Jesus. You're on the side of the resurrection. You're the one who's trying to tell people that the resurrection has changed everything. What are you doing saying, but some doubt? Just three little words. You could have left that out. Why would Matthew include the fact that they worshiped with everything that they are and yet still some doubted. Can I tell you the reason why Matthew wrote they worshiped him but some doubted? I'll tell you why. This is mind-blowing. Because some of the disciples doubted. Isn't that crazy? What is he... Here's Matthew. Matthew's like, guys, I'm not writing a fictional story here. I am recording what actually happened. I'm not trying to put on a spin for some agenda. I'm reporting the facts of what happened. We were worshiping Jesus on that mountain in all of his glory, but the reality is that some of us still doubted. These are the people that Jesus is handing the keys to the vehicle of the kingdom of God to and saying, hey, ready or not, here you go. I'm out of here. It's up to you now. That's crazy that God uses people even though they're not ready to be used by God. I don't know if this deflates your Christianity that some doubted in the midst of seeing Jesus in all of his glory But to me, this breathes new air into my tires, and it puts the wind beneath the sails of my heart. Rather than deflating me, this gives me life. Because aren't there times, I know there are in mine, when I worship God with everything within me, and then the next moment, I have these questions. Isn't it like us to sing When the music fades and all is stripped away, I'll bring you more than a song. A song in itself is not what you've required. I'm giving giving you all of my heart. And then the next day to question, like, Missy Elliott, is it worth it? Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever felt like, I'm ready to conquer the world on Sunday, and then once Monday comes and you go to school and your friends start tempting you, or you go to work and, and the lure of money and promotions and all of that stuff begins to throw itself in your face? Isn't it easy then to doubt what we worshipped on Sunday, the one that we worshipped on Sunday? 
youth. I remember being at a, one of our youth retreats, and this was many years ago, probably like 10, 15 years ago. And it was this one night where I just felt like, man, God was really moving. And it wasn't this, like, this heaviness, but there was a sense of like joy and freedom. And, and we were singing this song called Promises by Desperation Band, I think. It says, all your promises won't let go of me, and it's fun, and it's upbeat, and people are jumping up and down, and they're, and they're dancing, and you know, the sun's shining down, and it just won't set um, your love is a light and it lights my step and I can't forget all these things and people were singing it. and there's one high school girl and um, she was just like really just getting rocked by Jesus and she was so excited jumping up and down smiling and I remember looking at her in particular amongst all of the people jumping up and down saying wow she's really if, there was, if someone was to win an award for best worshiper of tonight's retreat service um, it would be this girl right here and then after the sermon, she comes to me and she's like, hey, can you pray for me? Because I've been having really uh, a lot of doubts about whether God is real or not. And I thought to myself, that's weird, but you were just giving all of your worship to God. And then all of a sudden, you don't know that he's real. And I admit at the time I was judging her. But now that I read this and now that I live longer, I begin to realize that Jesus shows us that worship and doubt can coexist at the same time. And he's not afraid of that. And he can still use people in that place to do his work. They worshipped him, but some doubted the very next thing Jesus did was said, go because I'm going to use you. That's crazy. But that's real life. And that's how Jesus works. But, but that's weird. Like these people, they saw Jesus in all of his glory. But here's a crazy thing. You, you realize that every time Jesus shows up after the resurrection, after Easter, it's like confusing people. He walks into a room where the doors are locked and they're like, what the Jesus, where'd you come from? It's Mary Magdalene who's known Jesus and walked with him for, for a long, long time. She sees Jesus and she's like, oh, it's just a gardener. That's crazy. It's Peter who knows Jesus is John, and, and he's just a stranger on the shore to them, someone they don't know. As he walks with these two disciples on the road to a master, walking miles, and he's incognito. They don't understand him. Isn't that how it is sometimes that we see or we know Jesus is with us, but we don't always see him? It's not hard to understand how worship and doubt can coexist in the same person and in the same place, and in the same time. Because it does for the disciples. It does for you, and it does for me. And here's the kicker. It did for the disciples, and yet God said, Jesus said, I'm going to use you. And they said, okay, ready or not, here we go. We ain't ready, but we're going to obey him one step at a time. And it changed the world. God wants to use you, whether you're ready or not. In fact, it's your inadequacy that leads you to a place of being used by God. Years ago, before I actually moved down here in the year 2000 or 2001, I was driving with my pastor, Hank, and he asked me how I'm doing. I said, you know what, I'm, I'm just, uh, I just feel in my heart this sense of dryness that's been here for some time. And he's like, oh, that's too bad. And the very next thing he said was, hey, DL, you want to go preach at a retreat? I was like, dude, that's the last thing I want to do. He said, come on, you'll be great for them. I said, have you not been listening to anything I've said like during this time? I've been sharing about my struggles. And he said, no, I, I, I have heard you. But you're never going to feel like you're ready. Just go and do it. What was he saying? I think what he was saying was, you will always feel inadequate for the task. In fact, you ought to. But knowing there's two options here. 
Inadequacy can be a bad thing if it leads you to quit or to never start. But if it leads you to throw yourself upon the grace of God and say, God, I need you. I want to be used by you. I'm not quite there yet, but I want you to use me. Then God will take that and he will do so much more with it than you can imagine. The first thing that we see, who are the, who are the ones who are taking this commission to the world? It's you. It's me. It's people who worship God, but who doubt at the same time. The first thing that we see from the who of the Great Commission is that God uses people. God wants to use you even when you don't feel ready. First thing. Second thing that we see is that God wants to use you even though your situation doesn't seem ideal. When I was in college, one of the things that uh, I loved doing was playing intramural sports, intra within mural the walls. Intramural sports is basically within your campus, you form teams and you play against other people on your campus. We'd sign up for basketball, fo- uh, flag football, volleyball, whatever it was, all to win the coveted intramural championship t-shirt, which we all wanted for free. And so we played in all these different events and uh, we played softball. And I remember one year we were playing softball and this uh, was it was a co-ed softball game. In softball, you have 10 players on the field. In baseball, you have nine. But in softball, you have 10. So we're playing softball, but one of our players was coming late because they had class. It was like an education class, and it was ending late. And so uh, we tried to stall as long as we could. We said to the umpire, we only have nine people. Uh, can you wait? Can you wait? And then finally, he's like, all right, guys, we're going to have to play. Uh, we said, we can't play with nine. Our guy is coming. He's just uh, running a little bit late. He's like, we've got games after you scheduled every hour, so we need to start. We're like, dude, we only have nine people. We need 10. He said, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Intramural rules, you can play with nine. Ten is ideal, but you can go with nine. And then he said, play ball. And we got crushed and we lost because we didn't have ten people. A lot of times we're waiting for a situation that is ideal in order to move forward. And sometimes you can't wait for an ideal situation to begin moving forward. Look at what it says here. This is important. Okay, in verse 16, I don't want you to miss this. Okay. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Did you miss it? Okay. Then the 11 disciples immediately people who are reading this are saying hold on wait a minute this is not something's not right something's not right it's got to be 12 it's got to be 12 11 is a number for imperfection 12 is a number for perfection you remember jacob had 12 sons you remember there were 12 tribes of israel you remember there are 12 spies that went into the promised land remember there are 12 disciples remember there are 12 baskets of bread left over and jesus fed the 5,000. it should be 12 disciples this is not right this is not the ideal scenario this is only then the 11 disciples matthew you forgot one Where's the other? This is like if you were if you're reading today, oh, a new movie coming out, it's the Fantastic Three. You'd be like, dude, no, 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 no. It's got to be the Fantastic Four. Something is missing. Or the kids are watching, oh, it's a movie about these spotted white and black dogs. Yeah, the 100 Dalmatians. No, no, no. It should be 101. Da-na-na, na Sports Center, top nine plays brought to you. No, it's supposed to be top 10. What happened to the other one? They're reading this. Then the 11 disciples, something is off here. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Then the 11 disciples. 
See, a lot of times we wait for a situation that is ideal in order for us to go forth to, okay, I'm going to do this, God. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do this. But, but it's not the right time. It's not the ideal time. Jesus saying, hey, whether you got 12 or 11, it's the ideal time. Ready or not, it's game time. It's go time. You got to go. Don't wait until you're ready. You just get up and you go because I've commissioned you to go. A lot of times, I, mean, I wonder how much of being used by God we're missing out on because we're waiting for an ideal time in our lives. Maybe you're a seventh grader and you're like, oh my gosh, seventh grade in middle school is so hard. Last year I was in sixth grade and I transitioned in and it's so difficult. But when I get to eighth grade, I'll be on top of the middle school heap. Then I'm going to start living for God's purposes and live out his, his kingdom call. You get to eighth grade and you're like, oh my gosh, eighth grade is so stressful. Don't you know I've got to do well in order to get into the, the IB program and it's just, it's just too hard. Once I get to ninth grade, it'll be easier. Get to ninth grade, oh my gosh, freshman, like high school is no joke. Middle school, psh, that was nothing, but high school is so difficult. Wait until I get to 10th grade. Get to 10th grade. Oh my gosh, I'm still reeling from being beat up by everyone in 9th grade and I'm still recovering and licking my wounds. Just wait until next year. Junior year comes around. Junior, oh, don't you, SATs. Oh my gosh, I got to start thinking about college. Wait until senior year. When I'm senior, I'll be done with everything and I'll be ready to coast. Senior year comes. Don't you know I got to make memories. I got to meet up with my friends. Hey, once I get to college, that's when I really start living. Freshman year in college. Oh my gosh, I've got to make friends. I got to meet people. My social life depends on it. I'm adjusting to all these things. God, wait until sophomore year. Sophomore year comes. Don't you know this is the weed out where people who are pre-med get weeded out because of oh, my organic chemistry. It's killing me. I, junior year. Once junior year. Junior year in college comes. You're like, oh no, not this year. I got to get ready for, for summer internships. I got to have a competitive resume. Senior year comes. Oh, I'm graduating. I got to start interviewing for jobs. Grad school. When I get to grad school, oh my gosh, I don't have any money. I don't have time. There will never be an ideal time. When I get married, when I get a job, when I get promoted, I don't have time, when I'm not working on the weekends, when will it ever be the ideal time? Then the 11 disciples. Well, there were supposed to be 12, but one, what, what happened? The, uh, yeah, that, that guy ended up killing himself. Hey, and, and you know what? The other 10, they left Jesus uh, at the cross to die by himself. And then the leader of that, te- he, he denied knowing Jesus three times. These are, these are the people and this is what they're dealing with some month, a month after all these things happen. Jesus says, listen, there is not a, such a thing as an ideal time for you. We had, uh, before, the, before the quarantine, um, there is a house church, the uh, Southeast Asia house church. It was multiplying. And they were multiplying either to, in, into either two or three house churches. And uh, one of the sisters, uh, a sister named Semi, said, yeah, you know, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. And, and she started a house church, and she's, like, killing it, doing awesome stuff. And then there was another sister who was uh, chosen to be a leader by the, uh, by the other members of the house church. Her name was Eunice. And Eunice said, uh, I, I'm not too sure. I'm going to pray about it. And so um, as we're communicating, as we're talking, she said, here are the things that I think are, are, are challenging. First of all, um, I don't know if my home is a suitable place to host a house church gathering. Second of all, because of my work schedule, I don't know if I have time to make it home to, to cook food and to prepare a meal for all the people within the house church. Also, I've already committed myself and committed my weekends uh, to investing into the youth students of our church. 
Also, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be getting married later this year. I've got a, a wedding to plan, and, and I'm just not sure that it's the right time. And obviously, it's, it's like really hard. It's really hard. And so um, we said, okay, let's, let's pray about it. Uh, think about it, pray about it, and then uh, just let me know how uh, the Lord is leading you. And so she prayed about it. She talked to different people. And uh, partly, you know, I'm expecting, okay, maybe for her it's not the right time. But she comes back and she says, I'm ready to do it. I said, oh, really? Okay, what, uh, what happened? She said, you know, as I talked to different house church shepherds, every single one of them told me that this is so difficult. That everything about life changes. That it's no longer I do whatever I want to do and hang out with whomever I want to hang out with. But now, my house church is the people that I'm serving and loving and eating meals with and spending holidays with. These are my people. And everyone said how difficult it was, but they said that they are all growing so much as a result of it by serving people, but also through the fellowship that they're having with other shepherds. They're growing in ways that they've never seen before. And she said, as I laid out all the reasons why and all the reasons why I shouldn't, at the end of the day, I just felt like this is too great of an opportunity for me to pass up to serve God. Was it the right time? I don't know. Maybe Was it the ideal time? Maybe not, but there's no such thing as an ideal time. Another one of our house church shepherds, Matt, uh, Matt Lim, said another time, he's like, there's no, what is the right time? When is the right time to do it. There will never be a time where you feel like all your ducks are in a row and everything is good. Here's how I see it. There might be a wrong time. Okay, there might be a wrong time. You're not a believer or you've got a million other things on your plate. But what I will say is if it's not the wrong time, don't wait for the right time because it's always the right time. It's always the right time because Jesus' commission has been given to us. It's already been given. Oh, I'm waiting to see if it's the right time for me to go to uh, summer missions. Hey, if Jesus, God doesn't say don't go, then it's the right time. Stop waiting for the ideal time. Oh, I don't know if I should be doing this. I don't know if I should be telling this person about Jesus. I don't know if I want to initiate a relationship. If it's not the wrong time, it's the right time. When's the right time to jump off uh, out of an airplane to sky. They don't wait. The, the instructor doesn't wait. He says, okay, here we go. We're going. Ready or not. They don't wait for you to say, okay, I think I'm ready. They just go. And to those who do that with God, they realize that God meets them in the air and catches them and takes them far further than they could ever imagine going. The second thing that we see is that not only does God use people who don't feel quite ready but God uses you even though your situation doesn't seem ideal. Coronavirus is not an ideal situation. But what does it look like for us to begin to think, wow, the Great Commission has not been negated or put on hold because of the sake, for the sake of a virus pandemic. What does it look like for us to say, I'm not going to wait for an ideal time but I'm going to begin living in the mission of God here and now. Second thing that we see, there's no ideal situation. God's ready to use you even though it doesn't seem like it's ideal. The third thing that we see is that God will use you as long 
as you want to be used. God will use you as long as you want to be used by God. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. See, before Jesus died, he told his disciples, hey, after all this is done, meet me in Galilee. Meet me at that mountain. When the women went to the tomb and saw the risen, the tomb was empty, then an angel said, go tell the disciples what happened and then tell them, remind them to meet Jesus in Galilee. And so they go to Galilee. Why are they there? Because Jesus said, meet me there. It's their way of saying, hey, I'm coming to the mountain because I'm available to be used by you. Yeah, there's a, a place in, uh, in Annandale, Virginia, off Little River Turnpike, right, where um, there's a couple Korean restaurants right on that corner. And there's a 7-Eleven, and in front of that 7-Eleven is this place where a lot of people co- gather, congregate. Most of them are uh, immigrants from different countries. Most of them don't have jobs. And every morning they gather there, and pickup trucks will drive by, and they'll stop in front of this group of people, and they'll hold up a number of fingers, three, and three people will jump in the truck. These are day laborers, people who work for the day. They work in whatever field it is, construction, farming, painting, what have you. And at the end of the day, they get dropped off, get a sum of money, and then they go back to their homes and come back the next morning. The fact that they show up in that place every morning is their way of saying, I'm ready to work. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do whatever it is that you want me to do. I don't have skills. I don't have abilities, but I'm available to you. What the disciples are saying is we've come to this mountain. You know Jesus. We don't have ability. We can't, we can't catch fish. Uh, we can't even chop people's heads off. All we can do is chop people's ears off. We're really not that great. But we're here at this mountain because you told us to come, and we're here at this mountain because we want to make ourselves available to you. Guys, our availability is not about an abundance of time. It's, an about, it's about your attitude as it relates to your time. If Jesus is the king of our hearts and the king of our lives and the king of the world, and he gives us this mission, this commission that he's saying, I want you to be involved in it. If Jesus is who we say he is, who we sing him to be, then if he gives us a mission to do, we're not trying to squeeze that mission into our leftover time. We are rearranging our days and our lives and our schedule in order to say, God, I'm available to you in order that whatever you want me to do, I'm able, I'm willing. I may not have all the skills, but if I'm, as I make myself available, I know that you'll use me. By them showing up, they're saying, Jesus, we're available to you. And the greatest ability that any of us have, you, me, anyone else, the disciples, the greatest ability is our availability. Because your ability, all the abilities in the world mean nothing if you're not available to God. Most of the world, actually I shouldn't say most of the world, but much of the world has been watching this quarantine documentary called The Last Dance about Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls, 1997-1998, their last chance to win a championship together before the team breaks apart. They had the greatest player of all time, Michael Jordan. They had someone who was voted as one of 
another one of the 50 greatest players of all time, Scottie Pippen. But as you watch this documentary and as you remember the basketball season, that Scottie Pippen is one of the most gifted, talented, complete uh, just a five-tool player. He can do everything. He can play offense. He can play defense. He can play any and guard any position. He had all the ability in the world. The problem was he didn't like the general manager. He had beef with the general manager. And so he said, you know what? I'm not going to play. I'm not going to play. I'm going to wait until the season begins to have surgery on my injured appendage, and then I'm going to sit out for half the season, therefore rendering my abilities unavailable to the team and to the mission of accomplishing winning the championship. You could have all the abilities in the world. You could be the most gifted this, that, or the other, but if you're not available to God, it doesn't mean anything. How available are you to God? Now, we say God can do anything. God can do anything. That's not actually true. There are things that God can't do. Here's what God can't do. God cannot have a birthday party for himself because God has no beginning and he has no end. God can't tie his shoes because he doesn't have feet because God is spirit. There are certain things that God can't do. And God cannot multiply by zero at least not what we offer. If we don't give him anything, then we won't be used by God. All the abilities in the world, if we hold on to it, don't mean a thing if we're not available. Again, it's not about an abundance of time. It's not about having extra stuff to give. It's the attitude of our hearts. Sometimes I'll, I'll call a family meeting, not an informal family meeting. I'll say, kids, come here. I need one volunteer. Who wants to be my volunteer? And they think about raising their hand and then they think through their mind, hmm, what does he mean by volunteer? Sometimes when daddy says I need a volunteer, he wants me to try this ice cream that he bought. Then I want to be a volunteer. Sometimes daddy says I need someone to massage me for one hour. I'm not sure if I want to be that kind of a volunteer. So they're thinking in their minds, does he have a good reason for me to volunteer. They're thinking through these things. Their availability to me is predicated upon their knowledge of who their father is. When you withhold availability from God, what is it saying about our understanding of who God is? Do you remember when Jesus tells a story, a parable, about a wealthy landowner who had three servants, and he gave each of them talents. To one he gave ten, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He made five, two, I forget the, the numbers. But the first two people take it, and they're like, yeah, you know what? We're going we're gonna to make our master proud. We're going to make these available, and they double it. And he says, go and enter into your master's happiness. But the guy with one says, you know what? I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm not going to invest it. I'm not going to let it do anything. I'm just going to hold on to it and do nothing with it. And the master comes back and says, you wicked, lazy servant, you didn't do anything, be thrown out. And he's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. The reason I didn't do anything with it was because you're a hard man. You're mean, you're difficult. Why didn't he make his talent available for the master's bidding? It was all because of his view of the master. Are you available to God today? Because your availability 
speaks volumes about your view and your vision of the God who has called you and enlisted you into his service. What does your God look like? When your God calls you, do you feel afraid? Do you feel like he's demanding? Do you feel like he's a boss who can hire you and fire you at his whim? Or do you see a father whose heart was displayed at the cross where he said, I love you in this manner, that I would give my only son and I would offer him up to the ultimate in humiliation and in pain, in sacrifice, to the point of death in order that you would become my beloved child. We see his goodness, his wisdom in the resurrection that on the third day after the Son of God was crucified, he broke through the tomb with life and victory, shattering the chains, breaking the shackles off of sin and death and hell and Satan and demons. He said, you can trust the heart of a father who is good enough to give his one and only son, but who's strong enough and wise enough and powerful enough in order to redeem that for the glory of God and for the joy and the life and the blessing of everyone who would believe in him. That's our father. That's the God behind this promise, behind this commission. In light of who he is, when he calls and says, who will go for me? In whom shall I send? In light of what we've seen, that our response gladly, proudly, fully, freely, with everything within us, that we would say, here am I, send me. And wherever he would send us, that we would know that it's backed by the certain promises of a good, capable, wise, and loving Father who will be with us, whose spirit dwells with us, and who will be with us to the very end of of the age, that we would make ourselves available, that we know he wants to use us no matter how ready or how, how ideal our situation might be, that we would say, Lord, here am I, send me. Let's pray together. Let's pray in response to the word of God, to this great commission that Jesus has invited us into, trusting his heart and trusting what we know about Jesus. Let's extend our hands in availability and put our hands in his and say, God, I want to be used by you. I'm ready to be used by you. We'll look into in greater depth the Great Commission next week. Can we just say, Lord, here I am. I'm not adequate, but I don't want to run from you. I want to run towards you so that my inadequacy releasing your power in my weakness your strength made perfect that my inadequacy would be the gift that I offer to you and that through my availability that you would touch the world through me let's pray for a minute it's responding to the word of God asking that he would help us to see Jesus and his goodness so that we would respond and be used of him to not only see the gospel survive in our generation, but to see it impact nations through our joyful obedience. Let's pray for a minute in that way, and then I'll pray on our behalf afterwards.
Father in heaven, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. If it were the rich people that you used only, the smart people only, the able-bodied only, the talented only, the supremely gifted only, the beautiful only, then many of us would be shut out from your kingdom's expansion, mission. But we thank you that you open open the opportunity to every child of God to be enlisted into the service of the King. The greatest commission that the world could ever receive has been squarely placed in our hands. Lord, help us not to just know it. Help us not to just memorize it. Help us to obey it so that the kingdom of God would be built through us, so that people would find their joy in Christ and that we would find great delight in living for a purpose so much bigger than our own lives, our own kingdoms. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first and call us to love the world that you so love. Draw us near to your heart so that we might be your hands, we might be your feet. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.